Hey friends, welcome to the Redeemer Queens Park podcast. Redeemer exists to help connect Jesus to people, people to community, and community to mission. We're gathering on Saturdays at 3 p.m. to worship God and fellowship. If you ever have any questions, or if we could be of help in any way at all, then please give us a shout at hello at redeemerqp.com. We hope you'll be encouraged as you hear another one of our Bible talks. Let's listen to the next episode. Thank you, Gil. Thank you, David. Let me add my welcome to those that have been given. It's great to see each of you here today. On this uh, Easter journey, we're exploring the world of the emotions, and uh, you could almost reword that last word from Jesus, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. What we're learning in these last couple of weeks together is that where your emotions are, there your heart is also. Our emotions are good things. They're given to us by God, these instinctive, uncontrollable heart responses based on what our hearts rest in and what they trust in and what they hope in, we'll feel different emotions coming up within each and every one of us. One of the the points that we're really trying to work out in our lives very practically is the idea that we don't really need new emotions. What we often need is is new hearts that are able to give us new loves and new, new desires. Our emotions then are shaped by what we love. We should engage them whenever we can find them. We're talking about the emotion of fear this afternoon. And let me ask you, what are you afraid of? We'll be a little lighthearted since moments in this could become a bit real for us. Thinking about our fears, you can think of some of the more popular and common phobias in the world, right? Arachnophobia, fear of spiders. Any of those in the house? I see that hand. Acrophobia, the fear of heights. Anyone got that? Yeah? A few of those. I mean, this would be a terrible one in London, and I'm, I'm going to botch it, so I'll meet you in that, David. Uh, Umbrophobia, which is the fear of rain. You need to find another town to live in. Um, Pagonophobia, the fear of beards. Christian, I'm glad I don't have that one with you. There's Cobraphobia, which is the fear of clowns. Anyone having that? Yeah? Actually, I had a friend growing up. He, uh, he was scared to death of, cr- of clowns. We never went to McDonald's because, at least in the States, it was like, you know, the little mascot or whatever. I think the, the most dangerous one today is nomophobia, the fear of being without your phone or device. But what do you fear? That's just making light of it. That's just keeping it easy. But, I mean, what, what, do, what do we fear? Fear is a terrible thing if misplaced because it can control our hearts it can force our actions it can cause us to behave in ways we never really wish to behave what are your fears one of mine is the fear of man i want to be liked i want to be loved in an unhealthy sense and when that inside of me is left unchecked when I don't, like Gil read to us, when I don't really fear the Lord, I'll find myself caring too much what other people around me think. And that has a way of making me behave in different ways. Some ways that never really want to behave and I regret after I do. What do we fear? Think about the word fear. 
Fear comes to us with an incredible number of names. The, uh, the, the, the Inuit, a group of culturally similar indigenous peoples in the Arctic and subarctic regions of Greenland, Canada, and Alaska, it's said that they have about 40 different words for the word snow. And when you think about it, they supposedly have more than 40 different ways of describing this one thing whenever your vocabulary balloons with a multiplicity of terms and definitions for the same kind of core concept, you know you've hit a profound cultural concern. Same is true with fear. You could describe fear with words like uneasy, worried, nervous, anxious, tense, uptight, spooked, haunted, scared, afraid, panicked, terrified, and petrified. Lots goes with this. But what does our fear even communicate when you think about it? Whether it's mild uneasiness or abject terror, fear has a simple message that a value deep in our hearts is under threat. So we feel afraid. And we feel afraid in different ways. Our fears are probably the single best roadmap to figuring out what our hearts really value. It's estimated that fear, more than every other issue, is the issue that leads people to seek counseling. So where fear flourishes, there your heart will be also. Think about how real this is for us on a personal level. Our fears tell us not only what we love, but they actually push us to extremes in our relationships. Fear urges us to either jump back from other people or fear can actually lead us to cling to other people like driftwood in a wreckage and hang on to them for dear life. Take, for example, a woman who might be afraid of being judged by other friends at church. One natural strategy would be to pull away from friends and to keep a safe distance so that you might be able to create a state of affairs where people can only see what you want them to see. But let's think about how that strategy actually has a way of only pushing us deeper into our problem. This could leave only fewer touch points for her friends to be able to evaluate or to judge what this person is like. Keeping others at arm lengths only turns out, though, to increase the burden for performance on the next interaction. It only makes the person more concerned, more uneasy, and more insecure about how they're really doing. So each encounter only increases the anxiety of the relationships because everything around you becomes more and more fragile because you're not giving yourself over to more and more interactions. Well, the heightened anxiety usually leads a person deeper and deeper and deeper into the, into the cycle. We feel more and more unsure of ourselves. We feel more and more unsure of our interactions. We look at one another and we have these weird things start coming over. We start judging one another and we're, we're judging every little look and tick and gesture and we're reading too much into things. Naturally, this, this, this cycle, it only forces us deeper into the issue. We feel like we need to pull away to protect ourselves even more. And we go deeper and deeper and deeper and it's because of fear. Well, we need to be able to connect with this on the other side so we can really hear what Jesus has on offer for us. On the flip side, imagine a slightly awkward young man who's experienced repeated rejection 
from woman after woman after woman. And finally, he's in a dating relationship. Think about how fear can drive him as well. He becomes over-attentive to every little look, every little touch, every little word, every little eyebrow raise of his new girlfriend. He becomes more and more over-eager to spend time. He becomes over-quick in saying yes to things and committing to things. And he clings to her for reassurance. And what's actually going on in his heart, he actually idolizes the idea of even having a girlfriend rather than the person herself, and she gets on to that eventually. It's fear. See, many women, they find such attention pleasant at first, but inevitably it turns out to smother actual love, actual affection, and actual attraction. It's fear. So fear can lead us in our relationships with one another to be unhealthy and to self-serving extreme ways. And removing fear has a way of opening us up with one another. We can be a community of real love and real affection for God first and most and then for one another in a way that makes all the sense. How many times when we're praying for one another do we pray that God would actually be with someone? It's the idea of God being with someone that gives relaxation to the soul. It's because we know deep down inside of us the comfort of God's presence is that one thing we really need. It's the hope that God would come to us and He'd be committed to us and He would be present with us. Intimacy, closeness, and connection beyond our wildest dreams is what's on offer from God. And that's why we're in Luke chapter 12. It sounds very familiar to what we studied just last week in Matthew chapter 6. A long discourse on worry is what we see here. But we see it framed up around some larger issues that the author has for us, and they're all related to fear. And it's a massive portion of Scripture. We're not going to get through every little uh, nook and cranny and detail of it. But I want you to think about this. Luke chapter 12, it teaches followers of Jesus who struggle with fear how not to be afraid. That's what this chapter of the Bible has for you. So let's lean into it together. The whole chapter is about fears that we can struggle to overcome. And when you see in verse 4, there's the fear of death through persecution. You see in verse 11, there's the fear of public disapproval. You see in verse 22, it's the fear of not having what we need. And it goes all the way down, getting to the, the more and more central heart fears that we feel. And it gets down to this one immobilizing fear at the bottom of them all. And it's in verse 32, the fear that God actually doesn't love us. Jesus is addressing the fact that we struggle to believe that he is good towards us. And theologian A.W. Tozer once said, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. I just wonder what comes to mind when you think about God. Of all the thoughts, of all the ideas, of all the emotions, of all the character traits, of all the ways that he could treat someone, what comes into your mind? What is that first thing that happens when you think about God? Do we naturally think of God as a fear defeater? A father who crushes fear with promises? That is who he is. And I want you to see him as such this afternoon. For just a few minutes, I want you to see this. I want you to see this fear-defeating Father in Luke chapter 12. 
Yeah, we have different phobias. We have different tics. Like, oh, just don't take me up on the roof of this place after this. Don't show me a snake. But deep down, we have things that make us uneasy and unsure. And here, here we have a God who wants to take away our fears by committing himself to us and promising to be with us. So what is the ground of this fearlessness? Take it in these five simple statements. The first thing to see in verses four through seven is that God has the power over life and death. That's what Jesus starts this whole thing with in verses four through seven. It says God has the power over life and death. And the implication through this is that we should not fear persecution. We shouldn't. Jesus knows that his followers would be persecuted. Jesus knows that some of his followers, followers would be even killed. Jesus walked around looking at people saying, listen, a servant is not above his master. If this is how they treat me, how do you think they're going to treat you? So Jesus says to his people in tender love, do not fear those who can kill the body and can't do anything more. Followers of Jesus shouldn't fear because there's more to life than living. Followers of Jesus don't have to be paralyzed and cramped by trying to hang on to this reality because we know a greater reality is to come. And what Jesus does here is He tries to wean us off of our fear of death when we realize that Jesus Himself, God, holds the keys to life and death. Well, the result is that we should not fear. We should not fear persecution. Psalm chapter 63, verse 3 says the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. So practically, few of us in this room, practically few of us in this room would probably fear persecution that leads to death. But I'll tell you one thing that all followers of Jesus in this room feel. All followers of Jesus in this room, we feel the social shame of associating ourselves with Jesus in public. And there's the truth for us still. Perhaps God's been working in your hearts to, now that the sun's coming out and the temperatures, maybe they'll eventually rise consistently. Maybe you finally wanted to go engage with that neighbor, engage with that coworker, start a conversation, and start sharing the gospel with the people around you. We all fear, how's that going to go? How's that going to turn out? What are they going to say? What am I going to say? Hear from Jesus. God has the power over life and death. Don't fear people that can just make you feel weird after a social interaction. Fear God. Specifically, we should not fear persecution. God's working in our lives, and we don't have to be afraid because God is greater than life. So think about the specific fear. The specific fear listed in verses 4 through 7 is death by persecution. And this might apply to some of us in this room that since God leading them in their hearts to maybe move to a different part of town or move to a different part of the world for the sake of the gospel. Specific fear addressed in verses 4-7, through seven, death by persecution. And here's the basis of fearlessness in verses 4-7. through seven. God has the power over life and death. Therefore, you do not have to worry. You do not have to worry about death. You can worry about serving God. And he goes, look at the next bit. God has given us the Holy Spirit in verses 8 through 12. He says, do not be anxious when they bring you before rulers, for the Holy Spirit will teach you what you ought to say. When a crisis comes into your life, you don't have to rely on your own wisdom. When you're you're brought into 
when you're brought into the head teacher's office because of how you choose to go about the curriculum at school, you don't have to fear. When you're brought into your boss's office because you choose to live your life and make decisions as a Christian, you don't have to fear what you're going to say. Because according to Jesus, the Holy Spirit will give you words to say in that moment. So when a crisis in your life comes, you don't have to rely on wisdom. You can rely on God. Trusting God is the way to defeat fear. Think how practical this is. We all face this. We're all scared to speak of Jesus because we feel like we're not going to have all the answers. Let me go in and free you up. You won't. (laughs) There's no way you will. There's no way you can walk into every conversation with every person you could ever have and have all the answers. You don't. I don't. We won't. We have something better. We have the very presence of Jesus living inside of the people who trust in Him by faith. And you have a promise. He is with you. And He will speak through you. And He will tell you what to say in those moments. You have something far better than having a Bible dictionary memorized in your frontal cortex. You have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you. And you're able, you're able to walk into conversations and to put yourself into interactions, not knowing what's going to happen. So we have the Holy Spirit. So we don't have to fear people. God desires, God desires the Father wants His children to share the Gospel with people. And here in this passage, look at verses 8-12. through We have a promise. We have a promise that God will tell you what to say. Practically, this works for me in my life whenever um, I, I can sense I've, I've, I've been a bit dry. Like, um, might know some things about God, but not really acting on them. Maybe my obedience isn't there. Maybe things are going largely well, but it's just been a while since I've tried to share the gospel with somebody. I pray a very simple pray. I pray for boldness. I pray for opportunities. And I pray for wisdom. And then whenever I'm in an interaction, I just try to open my mouth and just talk. Look at the specific fear. The fear is of people and public disapproval. That's the specific fear named in verses 8 through 12. And the grounding of our fearlessness is that God will give you the comfort with His Spirit. The Spirit of Jesus inside of you is a far better deal than having Jesus standing right beside you. You have the Spirit. So whereas we could fear people, we could fear public disapproval, we don't have to because we have the Spirit of Jesus. Third, Jesus wants us to see that God is the source of all good things. In verses 13 to 21, Therefore, there's an implication for His people. His people, His people do not have to fear sacrificial living. So what He's talking, is what He's talking to us about. And that, that fear is wide. There's many applications here. We don't have to fear living for the now. We don't have to fear living for the next 10 years. We don't have to fear living for the next 20 years. We don't have to fear living for retirement. Because God is the source of all good things. I'll just read that verse just one more time because I think it's helpful. The steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. Psalm 63, verse 3. So Jesus tells a parable of a rich fool. The man had an expanding income, and yet Jesus considers this person a rich fool. Things were going well, and where this guy got it wrong is that he had an opportunity. He could send it into the kingdom, or he could send it into the barns. 
And his error is in verse 19. Soul, you have ample good laid up for years. Yet the fear of the Lord is better than life. You have ample good laid up for years. His contentment or his fearlessness was based on his possessions. There's nothing wrong with having possessions. There's nothing wrong with having money. There's nothing wrong with coming into wealth. There is something wrong with finding a sense of security and identity from those things. And his error is that he spoke to his soul from a place of security based on material circumstances. And God calls him a fool. And this is a terrible thing. I think there's a warning for us here, especially, I mean, this church is like half of us are pretty young. No offense to those that are not as young as some of us in this room. We need you. We need the wisdom. We need the experience that this room has to offer. When you think about it, for those of us, we could think as you feel the income rising, an implication from this then is to use that to serve God so we don't have to hear God say to us, you fool. In verse 21, let's choose, let's make a decision to be rich towards God. So practically, all of us want to be comfortable and safe. Um, I did not want to go into vocational ministry because I wanted to be comfortable and I wanted to be safe. I was 15 years old and the Lord started tugging on my heart in a way that felt closest to conversion. And I sensed the Lord leading me to say yes to like vocational ministry. Just put like a yes on the table and let God do whatever you want with it after that. And from the age of 15 to 16 years old, I, I, I drastically resisted. Because I thought I could make myself safe. I thought I could make myself comfortable. Yeah, I would call myself a Christian. Yeah, I was in church and I was around a whole lot of the time. But the basis of my fearlessness, it wasn't God in that time. It was the fact that I could control the future. I could say yes to where I would go. I could say yes to what I would do. Practically, all of us want to feel comfort and safe. All of us want to avoid the loss of comfort. We face a fear. Are we going to be generous with what we have or are we going to play it safe? That's a fear. And here's the truth. God is the source of all good things. Therefore, we don't have to fear sacrificial living we don't have to fear not having what we need. Some of us in here have made specific decisions to move to other places for the sake of the gospel. You can hear Jesus from these texts, not calling you a fool, affirming that you are living your life being rich towards God. So we shouldn't worry. We should trust God. So. Here's a specific fear from verses 13 to 21. Not having enough money. There it is. Not having enough money. That's the fear. We see that the identity gets wrapped in that. The actions and behaviors start flowing out of that. And according to this text, that leads to godless investments. And that actually creates a new ground for fearlessness. New grounding. But no, the correction here is to trust God. Trust God to be the comfort. Trust God to be the confidence. There's nothing wrong with having wealth. There's nothing wrong with having material. There's nothing wrong with having possessions. There is something wrong with finding our security, our identity, our safety, and even our fearlessness in those material items. So God is the source of all good things. 
You don't have to fear not having enough. Fourth truth, God knows every detail of our lives in verses 22 to 31. Therefore, we shouldn't worry about having what we need. Won't spend terribly long here. This is where we spent last week. Do not be anxious. (laughs) One of our 40 you know, Inuit words for fear in Western culture. Don't be anxious. Don't worry. That's what Jesus says. Passage of Scripture literally come to life for me as I've tried to live the last 15, gosh, math, terrible, 16 years of my life trusting God with my future. Don't know where I'm going to go. Don't know how it's going to turn out. But I trust you, God. We don't have to worry about having what we need if He's controlling all the details of our lives. It's become very real for us. Jesus telling us to replace our tendency to worry about other things with trusting in Him. It's not simply resisting the need to worry. We need more than that. You can't just look at somebody and say, stop it. you got to give them something better to do. That's what Jesus does. Jesus looks at us and He doesn't simply say resist the urge to worry. He says replace it. The call in these verses is to replace our thing-seeking with kingdom-seeking. Jesus is telling us that we can stand out from the world as we refuse to buy into the idols of this world, be they power, be they money, be they influence, be they success. Nothing wrong with having these things. There's something wrong with making an idol out of them. Because the world uses money to feel safe. And Jesus causes us to use, calls us to use our money and to use our resources, even to give our lives for the sake of helping other people be safe and dependent on Him. So just briefly, there's a deep fear here. It's personal security. Am I gonna be all right? And look at the basis for fearlessness in verses 22 to 31. It's God who values people more than everything else in creation. So we don't have to worry about having what we need because God God knows every detail of our lives. Finally, Verses 32 and 34. And might I say, most comforting of all of these is the truth that God wants to give us the kingdom. He wants to give it to us. And it's significant in the context of so much striving and so much seeking and so much earning and so much investing and so much going for it that then this is where it lands. God wants to give His people the kingdom. It's what we've been building to, and it addresses that most basic fear underneath them all. Does God really love me? Is He really for me? I mean, maybe I need to hedge with my investments just in case He's not for me. Maybe I need to go out of my way when it comes to people to be sure I'm safe and to be sure I'm secure here just in case he doesn't really love me. Look at verse 31. So if we shouldn't be anxious, if we shouldn't fear, if we shouldn't worry, what should we do? Jesus tells us how to live our lives. 
He says, stop seeking the major idols of this world. Stop seeking sex. Stop seeking stuff. Stop seeking status and start seeking the kingdom. He says, followers of him can differentiate ourselves from the world by stopping the seeking and starting the seeking. He tells us to stop the thing seeking and to start the kingdom seeking. But how, how, how do you have the kingdom? How do you get this? Verse 33 tells us how to seek the kingdom. And this is going to sound extreme. It says, sell possessions. What happens? You get rewards. Selling possessions is a way of freeing ourselves from the love of money. The issue isn't money. The issue is loving something other than God and trying to be safe in something other than God. So we can know we're seeking the kingdom when we're releasing other perfectly good things from our lives. Because Jesus is the greater treasure than those things. It's a way you can know I'm seeking the kingdom. But know this as you do that. Know this in verse 32. The kingdom is not for sale. You cannot buy the kingdom. You cannot invest for the kingdom. You can't give so much money that then God decides to give you the kingdom. You can't earn it. Because it's the Father's good pleasure to give it. The kingdom is not earned. God cannot be bought, especially by one of us. The kingdom is a gift to those who want it. The kingdom is a gift for those who want God more than they want stuff. The kingdom is a gift for those that have been moved by grace to trust God more than they trust their own lives and their own bank accounts. The kingdom is a gift that is given freely to people who trust the king. You can't buy it but you can demonstrate that you have it by how you live. So how we handle our possessions is a way of helping our hearts and showing where our hearts are. Where your heart is, to, where your heart is determines if you are saved or not. And whether you are saved or not determines whether you have the kingdom or not. Therefore, how you handle your possessions is a pathway, but not the price to the kingdom. So is the kingdom for sale? Absolutely not. We don't buy this. So hear this. I know we kind of created a, a bit of an environment here to where if you're like me, you could be thinking this. This feels impossible. <laughs> feels impossible. How, we, how, how are we going to do this? Especially in London. How, how does this happen? Think about it. Managing our possessions into the kingdom is impossible. Another place in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus talks to a rich young ruler. And the ruler asks a question, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, Obey all the commandments. The ruler says, I've kept them. Jesus says, Well, sell everything and follow me. The ruler refused, and Jesus turns away, and Jesus says, It's hard for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. Well, the followers of Jesus are perplexed. The followers of Jesus look at this interaction, and they, they, they don't know what's going on. They say, Jesus, if that's true, this is going to be impossible for us. And Jesus says, with man, it is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Think about what we're saying here. Man has no hope. No hope. If a rich man with stacks of cash, if he can't get into the kingdom, then who can? 
The answer is that only God can do this. We don't need to shrink back at this though because the graveness of our human situation lends itself to the glory of God as our Savior. What feels impossible with man is possible with God. Because only God can give us new affections. And it's possible. It's called a new birth. It's about being born again and beginning again. But unless we turn and unless we repent, we will never enter into the kingdom. It is impossible to do this on our own. That's why God gives it to people who want it. God gives gives it to people who can realize the condition they're in and they can cry out to God in desperation for God to help and for God to save. And He promises that He will. The truth is that God is in control and we don't have to be in fear. And let me try just to pastor this verse into your soul in conclusion. Gil, come on up. We're almost done. Let's get this verse into our souls. Verse 32, fear not, Little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Maybe we could just meditate on this and we could think our way through this and we could allow this to steep in our hearts to where our grubby little hearts that are so tense and they're so insecure and they just don't want to let go and they just can't trust God. But we can let our hearts soak in this warm bath and we can find our hearts just starting to relax a little and starting to open up and starting to trust God. Think about the words of Jesus right here in this sentence. Think about these two words. Think about this. Fear not. Hear Jesus. Fear not. He is saying, do not be afraid. Jesus is saying, do not be anxious. Jesus is saying, you don't have to feel terrified. Jesus is saying, you don't have to be petrified. He says, fear not. What is the basis of fearing not? Well, he keeps going. He says, little flock. Think about these words. Of all the words Jesus could use to describe the people that he just said all of that to, he says, little flock. He does not call us slaves. He does not call us employees. He does not call us a tribe. He does not call us a people. He calls us a flock. He doesn't call us just any flock. He uses one more word so we'll be sure we understand what kind of flock we're working with here. He calls us a little flock. He calls us a small flock, a vulnerable flock, a prone to fear flock. We are the little flock. It is a term of endearment. It is a term of infection. He is affectionate towards us when he says you little flock. Because he cares about us. God magnifies his kingly glory and his kingly abilities in giving attention to a little flock. If we're a little flock, that means then we have a shepherd. We're part of a flock and God is our shepherd. And shepherds are smart. Shepherds know the tendencies of their sheep. Shepherds know when that sheep gets a look in its eye what it's tempted to do next. And Jesus says, fear not, little flock. These are the words of a shepherd that we're hearing here. In John chapter 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. I laid out my life for my sheep. Jesus is who he tells us he is, and he will do what he said he will do. It's what we celebrate this Easter. Jesus laying down his life to protect his sheep. So he's not saying you've got to, you've got to earn it with me. 
He's not saying you have to deserve this. He's saying, I'm going to lay down my life to protect my little flock. Jesus loves to save sinners at the cost of his life. This is why we worship him. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's. It's not your boss's pleasure. It's not your slave driver's pleasure. It is your father's pleasure. He uses the word father. A lot of us in here, we have a hard time getting this because we have bad relationships with our earthly dads. Jesus, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, Come, O blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. It's not weird for a son. It's not weird for a son to inherit a father's inheritance. This is what children get. They get what the father has. And this is what Jesus says, Fear not, a little flock. For it is your father's. It's your father's caring affection for his children. And it is your father's good pleasure. It is not your father's duty. It is not your father's necessity. It is not your father's obligation. It is your father's pleasure. There are a lot of kings. There's a lot of fathers. And there's a lot of shepherds that give grudgingly. You go out to eat. Kind of staring at the bill. Feel the heat rising. It's like, you gonna get that? Am I gonna get that? No, not this father. This father's different. This father never leaves you on the spot. This father never leaves you to wonder. This father says it's your father's good pleasure. It's his good pleasure to say, You're not paying, I'm paying. It's your father's good pleasure to make sure you feel safe, to make sure you feel secure. God loves to give because he loves. And God's saying that he wants to give you the kingdom. He wants to give it to you out of pleasure. He wants to give you the kingdom. God doesn't sell us the kingdom. God doesn't say you have to trade me your stuff for the kingdom. God gives the kingdom to a little flock. God gives a big kingdom. Jesus delights to give and he delights to give big. He delights to give so much bigger than anything we could ever ask, anything we could ever imagine, anything we could ever dream about. He delights to give us the kingdom. And think about the basis of fearlessness here. This verse, the basis of this little flock not running around in fear is that this little flock has a father. He owns everything. So they don't have to be afraid. This little flock has a father who owns everything and he runs everything. But that father is also the king. And he wants to, and he loves to give good things to his people. And he gives us good things by sending Jesus to be born, by sending Jesus to grow up and live a sinless life, by causing Jesus to willingly go to a cross and to die for the sins of the world. There's an offer that's out. He's won. You don't have to live in fear. The king has conquered. Come under his subjection. Be a part of his kingdom. And you can be free of fear. Because this is what the cross does. God defeats our fears at the cross. The cross is the place where God makes our fearlessness even possible. Because on the cross, Jesus faced our greatest fears for us. On the cross, Jesus became a sin substitute for us. And Jesus faced the judgment that we deserve for our sins. So God sent Jesus to the cross as our substitute. And Jesus Christ became our sin. He became all of our identity and other thing people so that we could become right with God.
Therefore, we don't have to fear judgment because Jesus bore it for us. And when you come to that place, when you know that God's judgment against your life has been removed, and when we learn over the years and over the decades together to live our lives sitting in that, forgiven by the grace of God, then and only then do we become finally free to relate with one another and to give our lives to one another without fear of judgment from other people as well. Because Jesus endured the rejection from the Father that we deserved. He suffered as our substitute. He experienced what it was like for the Father to turn his face away. So we don't have to fear that from God as well. You can know because of Jesus, the Father is pleased to live his life with his face towards you. And every word that gets said of Jesus by your faith in him is now true for you. It's true for you, brother. It's true for you, sister. So in conclusion, fear not. It's the most repeated command in the Bible. There are 356 fear nots in the Bible. And I can't think that's a coincidence. Fear not, because you have a father, shepherd, king who cares for you. He thinks about you. He feels for you. He has an interest in how you're doing. He acts on your behalf. He takes care of you. He promises to be with you no matter what until the very end of time in Joshua 1, 9 and Matthew 28, verse 20. He promises that he will always see your obedience through. And even a cup of cold water can't be given out of his awareness in Matthew 10, 42. He invites you to come to him when you're exhausted and overwhelmed in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 to 30. And he invites you to come to him so that you can receive forgiveness of your sins in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. So it's time to respond to this. Across this room, wherever we are, we have to respond to this. And there's some of us in here that need to trust in Jesus for salvation. As you hear me, as you read this, you see Jesus pointing out the deep, dark issue. It's that you're not trusting in him to be right. You're not trusting in him for a good life, but you're trusting in yourself. Scripture makes it clear we can't earn God's love. We can't buy God's kingdom. They're both a free gift that he gives willingly to whoever would receive it. Some of you need to receive it right now. You can't write him a check for it. You can't earn it from him. All you have to do is with the open hands of faith, say, okay, I need the gift. Just reach out and receive it. Some of you need to join this community that's trying to become a fearless faith family, but you need a new church home. I've benefited from membership in this community. People that help me fight off the fears that I wrestle with, the fear of man, the fear of circumstances, the fear of situations. Some of you respond to this by going deeper and taking the next step today. For those who trust in Jesus, we have no reason left to fear because God is in control. And for all of us in conclusion, fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the kingdom that's on offer. Father, we pray that you would help us to receive it. Father, help us to 
seek after this kingdom. Help us to live under the good rule and under the good guidance of King Jesus. Father, for anyone here today that needs to trust in this King, Father, we pray that you would give faith across this room. Father, for the rest of us, we pray with your servant David that you would search us, that you would test us, that you would see if there's any anxious way within us. So God, as we have a moment to respond, we open ourselves up to your spirit and your searching and your work in our lives. God, search us here. God, test us. God, help us to find those areas of our lives where we're not wholly leaned on you. We're not totally trusting in you. Would you move us there now, God? Not on the basis of any compulsion, but moved by your love and your mercy and your grace. Would you comfort us and would you lead us? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.